You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Lucy Kellison. This is the WFHB Local News for Monday, August 29th, 2022. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Dr. Ziva Cooper, the director of the UCLA Center for Cannabis and Cannabinoids. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB correspondent Kai Fitzgerald attended the Bloomington Pride Fest on Saturday and spoke with several attendees about why they attended Pride Fest and what was their favorite part. But first, your daily headlines. At the August 23rd Monroe County Community School Corporation Board meeting, board members discussed an incentive program for bus drivers. The board has received many complaints from parents about the long bus routes due to bus driver shortages. Director of Information Technology Adam Terwilliger presented the incentive program with a recommendation to approve $1,000 stipends in order to attract and retain bus drivers that have a commercial driver's license. I recommend to you the MCCSC Commercial Driver's License Incentive Program. This program works to attract and retain new CDL drivers to the corporation, as well as provide stipends to current drivers actively driving for the MCCSC. All current drivers are to receive a $1,000 stipend payable in two installments over the next two months. All newly employed CDL drivers are to receive a $1,000 stipend payable in two installments in the first two months of their employment in the MCCSC. Any non-administrative employee that refers a new driver will earn the stipend equivalency. I so recommend. Superintendent Jeff Hoswald thanked the bus drivers for their hard work. And we appreciate the board's consideration of this and and thank our drivers as well. I know they're working hard and they they deserve this. And um, we might add that our incentive is already um, recruited. um, Last count, I know we already have. Give me an update on the numbers from this program. Nine individuals, uh, four with, with CDLs. So that's great. All right. Well, thank you, Mr. Terrell. During public comment, bus driver Kip Shell thanked the Transportation Department and walked through what it means to be a bus driver. Good evening, everyone. My name's Kip Shell, and I'm a school bus driver, and I drive school bus EV1. EV stands for electric vehicle, so I get to drive one of the electric vehicles. Tonight, I'm here to just kind of give a little bit of praise to the Transportation Department for the new leadership that we have and the new directions that we're going. Um, everything is rolling out. Yes, have we had some hurdles to have to get over? Yes, we have. But are we making strides of improvements? Yes, we are. So I want to talk a little bit about my stripes. Every time you guys have seen me in here, you've always seen me in my stripes. My stripes are my badge of honor. That's what I, the way I look at it. Stripes are for safety. Um, safety is paramount in the things that we do with our kids on the bus. Safety is always first thing. The technology that we have to help with uh, you know, the, the GPS systems and stuff that we now have on the buses. Um, stripes for respect. We give respect. We need respect in return. We need respect from the children. We need respect from the parents. Um, 
I for individuality. Each child is its own individual. And we try to treat each child as their own individual. Um, the P in stripes for perseverance as we return each day to get up and do it all over again. Um, e for education. That can start from the time they start on the bus. You know, we, we help to encourage their education as well. Um, and then final S for supporter, we strive um, to do the best that we can do to help each of the, each of the kids. So there's so many different pronouns or adverbs or whatever you want to use as Mr. Fix-It from a coat zipper, backpack zipper, um, tying someone's shoes. I always tell my kids your ties are unshoed. And they look at me uh, from tying their shoes to, uh, you know, fixing their precious little piece of jewelry. You know, we as bus drivers, we do so many different things that, that just go unheard of. Um, we may not be teachers, but yet we'll teach your child. We may not be taxis, but we're going to get them where they need to be. Um, we may not be referees, but we will stop their game whenever they're not playing fair. Um, we're not counselors, but we're going to listen when the children need us. Uh, we may not be their parents, but we will care like we are. We are not nurses, but we'll bandage their boo-boos. You know, we're not police officers, um, but we'll protect them like one. Because we are your bus drivers. As a final thing in my last few seconds, please, um, when you see the big yellow Twinkie coming down the road with the lights flashing red on it, please stop. We have your children on board. Please stop. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. The school board approved the CDL incentive program unanimously. The next school board meeting will be held on September 27th. At the Monroe County Women's Commission meeting on August 24th, Chairperson Michelle Whitney Wash introduced new members Tiana Eroje. Maria Douglas, Nikki Williamson, and Molly Otto. Commissioner and County Council Liaison, Jennifer Crossley, introduced herself to the new members and explained why she joined the commission herself. Well, um, I'm Jennifer Crossley, and I am the newest person on County Council. I was caucused in um, December of 2021. And um, yeah, I am excited to be a part of this. Actually, thought to be not really physically thought, but I <laughs> I certainly asked to be a part of this because I do believe in the mission of our county women's commission, and I also know that um, Michelle has worked very hard with this commission and get it up and running. Um, and just as a woman, as a black woman, you know, being involved in civic engagement and leadership and having um, three kids myself, one who is, you know, really doing some good stuff here in the community. Um, and I'm really proud of how she's put herself out there. So she's following in my footsteps and just seeing how, you know, our state seems to think of women's rights and issues. Um, and I say that with a sarcastic uh, way. But <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so I, I definitely believe in that, and I'm just really excited to see this commission get off on the right foot, and uh, yeah. 
happy to be here. Whitney Wash explained the logistics of the upcoming Monroe County Girls Coding Camp and its curriculum. Um, a little bit about how the program is running. So we are actually using curriculum that has already been designed and tested okay, for middle school girls. It's the Girls Who Code curriculum, but we're specifically doing the at-home version so that girls can do this on the go as they need. Um, they will be able to do it from any device that they have because it's all cloud-based. If you all remember this program from last year, one of the issues that we ran into were some tech limitations because of what needed to be downloaded onto computers and what needed to be accessed. This time we are entirely cloud-based. And this is a social justice activism um, curriculum. So they're going to be getting coding skills, but they're going to also have the opportunity to really lean into and develop out their social justice lens and, and their activism. Our instructors, how are we pulling this off? Because I'm certainly not an IT person and cannot do this. So we just heard from the Luddy School, there are students that will be supervising that location on Saturdays, and they've actually run these programs for some time, right? And then also the Luddy School is providing interns that will supervise the curriculum at a remote location being Edgewood Junior High. Um, CWIT is actually going to um, staff the interns for the mill, again, with oversight from Andy and Bram. We are providing snacks to students. So every location will have ample snacks throughout the time. Um, and then there was one more thing that I was going to say. Oh, our central curriculum person is going to be Nick LaPlante. He's from Ivy Tech School of IT and has been with the program since we started it. Um, Chris Carroll used to also be with us, but has kind of transition. So Nick is our point person. So he is not going to be the primary deliverer of curriculum because we really want our interns to have that as much as possible. We're going to try to staff women identifying interns so that our girls in camp see women doing this work. But Nick will kind of be the behind the scenes, making sure he gets all of the interns together across the three different locations to make sure we're being consistent in what we're delivering. Something to note about this camp. The Edgewood Junior High location is going to run for an hour, okay? The other two locations, Dimension Mill and Luddy, will run for 90 minutes. If we need to pivot and extend Edgewood's location to 90 minutes, we absolutely can do that, okay? It was a matter of um, understanding the demographic of students that come, and their program happens right after school, so Megan keeps the girls, they don't even they don't even go home. Whereas the other two locations have a commute capacity to them. And so we built in some extra time um, to make sure that we have what we need. She clarified that the Monroe County Girls Coding Camp is different from the Girls Who Code program. However, the coding camp does use the Girls Who Code's educational content. Next, Whitney Wash introduced discussion on a question she often receives from the public. The camp is free to every single student. Every single student that participates, the camp is free. I'll also throw this out here. We get asked all the time, when are you going to do it for boys? I don't know. Can't say that we will. Can't say that we won't. What do you all think? I mean, we are the Women's Commission. What do you think about opening this up 
to students other than those who identify as girls. Eroje responded that she thinks the camp should continue to be held exclusively for those who identify as women moving forward due to the gender disparities that exist in STEM fields. I think there's a lot of different, I mean, working in a bloody school and we do a lot of outreach to women as well, knowing that women are minority in tech. Mm-hmm. I think um, there's a lot of other opportunities for men to get involved. I'm not saying that the Women's Commission can't do it, but I don't think there's a need. Mm-hmm. Um, there's We have camps that we're doing, even in Muddy, and it's for the majority. But I think in order for us to um, provide the access for women, we need to do something like this for women and keep it just people who identify as women. Okay. So start okay. the pipeline because it's continually... Even when I look at the incoming freshman class, there's a decline of women in our school. Mm-hmm. We need more women in tech, in STEM, everywhere. So, I mean, I don't think it's necessary. Whitney Wash added that she agrees the Women's Commission is responsible for helping women and should stay focused on serving that community. As a mom of a son as well. I think it's incredibly important that boys have access to these opportunities, but I don't think that every entity has the same call or job. And as a women's commission, until we have literally exhausted every single avenue or resource that we can for identifying programs for girls, and I think that's where we need to stay. I think if we want to even say, well, girls coding camp now as it stands, is insufficient for serving Native girls, Native and Indigenous girls, Black girls, right? Uh, There's a whole lot of other layers I think we can unpack, and I think the Women's Commission should stay focused on our identity group. So that's where I would stand. So if we get that question, it's not no, we don't think boys need coding, because we need people, we need talent in STEM in general, But what we do have is an intentional agenda to increase the number of girls that go into STEM fields or STEM-adjacent careers. The commission voted to hold their meetings in person moving forward, with the exception of a hybrid accommodation for emergencies. If a commissioner needs to attend via Zoom, they must inform the commission 24 hours in advance to ensure the commission makes a quorum. WFHB correspondent Kai Fitzgerald attended the Bloomington Pride Fest on Saturday and spoke with several attendees about why they attended Pride Fest and what was their favorite part. All right, first off, would you like to tell us your name? My name is Aisha. All right, what brings you here? I want to celebrate my identity and meet with friends and other people that are like me. What's your favorite part of Pride? All the colors and music and just happiness. Uh, my name is Kiara. Because it was a day very interesting to be here and be proud of what is my flag and represent it. Cuando la gente estaba reunida en el escenario, en el público se quedó saltando y festejando. Me encantó. 
My name is Morgan. I was a previous resident of Bloomington, graduate of Indiana University, and I am trans. My favorite part of Pride Fest is seeing some of the different organizations and the outreach and good that they do for the communities more locally within Bloomington and regionally throughout central Indiana. Christina. I used to go to school here, and this is my first Pride since being out. So um, I, I haven't been to a Pride like this. I was in Chicago for a little while. Um, so it's nice seeing, like, kind of a smaller scale, but, like, still really great. Like, I love seeing all the community and the organizations and all the dogs. <laughs> Brandon. Uh, visiting friends and camping, and then we came into town to uh, just walk around and have a bite to eat, yeah. I just enjoy... The fact that everyone is enjoying themselves, you know? I'm Rin. Um, well, I have gone here since I was 18, so this is my sixth year. It's kind of just routine at this point. <laughs> Walking around and knowing I'm not different from everybody, like usual, you know? Like, just being at home in myself, in public, I really like that. Emma. I'm from Bloomington originally, and uh, I've been coming to uh, Bloomington Pride Festival since it started in, I think, 2015, and so it's just a thing I've been doing every year. I would have to say my favorite part is the sense of community it brings. Um, I love Bloomington community events, and also I just love uh, all the LGBT support here. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Dr. Ziva Cooper, the director of the UCLA Center for Cannabis and Cannabinoids. Her current research involves understanding the neurobiological, pharmaceutical, and behavioral variables that influence both the abuse liability and therapeutic potential of cannabinoids and opioids. She served on the National Academies of Sciences Committee on the Health Effects of Marijuana that recently published a comprehensive consensus report of the health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids. We now turn to correspondent Zero Rose for the first part of a two-part interview with Dr. Ziva Cooper. Dr. Cooper, um, there's an internal system of receptors referring to or relating to endocannabinoids. Uh, do you believe that this is an indication of some kind of co-evolution that we've had with the cannabis plant? Do I believe that there's a co-evolution? It's interesting. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of receptors in our brain and body that respond to other plant chemicals, right? So like the opium plant the coca plant. So this isn't necessarily unusual. I think it's a really important feature that people understand that we have an endocannabinoid system that responds to the chemicals in the cannabis plant. Whether or not we evolved, I think an interesting example might be the fact that there are cultivators that have bred in the last 20 years, certain cannabis cultivars to produce cannabis chemicals that people prefer. Right. So so that's an example of of modern day evolution in the cannabis plant. 
in Indiana, in the last legislative session, they were uh, looking to possibly make the Delta 8 variant uh, illegal. They ended up not unsure if they were going to get rid of a certain uh, amount of things that are legal with uh, CBD. And they swapped it out, I guess, for um, permitless carrying of a, a handgun, which shows you that some of the legislative priorities they have here. I don't know if you're familiar with that or if that's also what's going on in other states. It's kind of being billed even by some of these people at the shops uh, that Delta 8 is a mild high. And so I guess that's the problem. Is Are there any therapeutic benefits to what is called a high? And it, do you see that Delta 8 is going to be become banned soon in a broad sense? First, with respect to Delta-8 THC and what we know about its effects, both its intoxicating effects as well as its potential medicinal therapeutic effects, there have only been a handful of studies looking at Delta-8 THC in people. And in fact, you know, one was published recently in, in three people that vaporized Delta-8 THC, but the other four were done decades ago. Some of them compare the Delta-8 THC to Delta-9 THC. Delta-9 THC is the primary psychoactive and intoxicating component of the cannabis plant that is considered to be Schedule One at the federal level when it's in the marijuana plant. So Delta-9 THC, it has these adverse effects. It does produce intoxication. It does produce impairment with memory and attention. But we also know that Delta-9 THC has therapeutic effects. And so the question here is Delta-8 THC. Can it produce some of these potential therapeutic effects that are similar to Delta-9 THC, but have less of the adverse effects like intoxication? And what I think you're hearing from consumers is that this is a quote unquote light Delta-9 THC is in relation to its pharmacological characteristics, characteristics, its chemical characteristics, in that Delta-8 THC is thought to be what's called less potent than Delta-9 THC. So it could have the same effects as Delta-9 THC, but you need higher doses. And so what's happening is that the doses that people are using of Delta-8 THC, it might produce intoxication, it might produce some impairment, but that level of intoxication and that level of impairment is less than what people are usually experiencing with the doses that they're using for Delta-9 THC. And so this is why we're hearing that this is like a light cannabis or a light Delta-9 THC. Now, can Delta-8 THC have the same therapeutic effects that we think Delta-9 THC has with less of the intoxication, less of the impairment. And I think that that's a really important question to ask that hasn't necessarily been probed thoroughly at all. There was one study um, a couple of decades ago that, that looked at Delta-8 THC and its potential for helping with nausea in kids that were undergoing cancer therapy. And that particular study found that Delta-8 THC in the format it was given was very helpful in reducing the nausea and it didn't have 
the type of adverse effects that you'd expect with Delta 9 THC. And so that was like a nice early signal that Delta 8 THC might be helpful therapeutically. But I can't stress this enough that this was just one study, right? And what we have here is a lot of people using Delta 8 THC, probably some people using it for medical reasons, some people using it for non-medical reasons. And at this point in time, the research is slow. You know, we, we are unaware of the potential therapeutic effects of Delta 8 THC and what are some of the negative effects that people might expect when they use it. Well, and is not that uh, limited research base somewhat due to the stigma and the illegality that's been over the plant for some time and has therefore also not really been investment in looking at it as a product to therefore study? Keeping the focus on Delta-8 THC and whether or not there's been the stigma and the regulations that have made studying cannabis difficult from a therapeutic perspective, keeping in mind Delta-8 THC, there's been a lot of focus, decades worth of focus, investigating the therapeutic effects of Delta-9 THC. This is much more abundant in the cannabis plant than Delta-8 THC. Delta-8 THC occurs at very small concentrations in the cannabis plant naturally. So in my opinion, Delta-8 THC wasn't necessarily, you know, the low-hanging fruit to investigate as a chemical produced by the cannabis plant for its therapeutic effects. The low-hanging fruits, as you've seen, is the Delta-9 THC, again, which has been studied for decades for its therapeutic effects. And what we're starting to see now, cannabidiol, CBD, you know, the potential therapeutic effects, because again, these plant varieties can be grown and cultivated to have high levels of CBD. Delta-8 THC, since it happens in such low concentrations in the cannabis plant, I don't think it was necessarily an obvious choice to investigate thoroughly or to be able to, you know, spend the money, the funds to be able to study that chemical for therapeutic effects. I think now that people are using it and people might be reporting its potential therapeutic effects, I think now it's become, there's been a spotlight on it. And so I think we will start seeing research on this particular chemical. And you mentioned uh, nausea as one of those therapeutic effects to do with cancer, the like. Uh, what are some of the other therapeutic applications? So one would hypothesize or think that, you know, the therapeutic applications for Delta-8 THC would be very similar to those of Delta-9 THC, but perhaps with lower adverse consequences. And so some of the therapeutic effects that are studied and some have been well-established of Delta-9 THC are related to the anti-nausea um, effects, uh, reduced vomiting, also increases in appetite, which is really important in large numbers of patient populations that have very minimal appetite. And what happens is when people have reduced appetite, the other symptoms of their illness get exacerbated. And so reduction in appetite is a really important symptom to target. Chronic pain is another therapeutic, potential therapeutic application of Delta-9 THC. There's been quite a bit of evidence showing that Delta-9 THC is helpful for certain indications where spasticity plays a role. So for example, multiple sclerosis, as well as um, sleep. So people who have illnesses or diseases where sleep disruptions are one of the core symptoms 
when people use Delta 9 THC or therapies with Delta 9 THC in certain settings, there's been a reduction in those sleep disruptions. And I think that is also going to be an important area of research. And so again, thinking about Delta 8 THC and Delta 9 THC as being parallel, a lot of those therapeutic effects that we see with Delta 9 THC, we would think would also relate to Delta 8 THC. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 